0: Alright, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis chapter number 12, what a blessing it is to see you here in the house of the Lord today. Trust that uh, you, uh as you come here, you got your heart open to what the Lord wants to do. And that's why we're here, amen? We're not just here to look at each other, amen? We're here to hear from the Lord. And uh so I trust that God is going to do a work in our lives. Genesis chapter number 12, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. Genesis chapter 12. Verse number one, the Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, unto the plain of Moreh. and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east side, east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he took Sarai's wife, Uh, he said unto Sarai's wife, Behold now. I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore behold thy wife. Take her and go thy way. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God, Lord. What a rich, precious treasure it is to us today that we might be able to gaze upon the very words of the God of the universe. I pray that as we approach your word that we would not do it without reverence, that, Lord, we would have our hearts in an attitude of humility, that we would with meekness receive the engrafted word, Lord, that you would be able to do a work in us. Now, Lord, you can do all things, but we can limit what you can do in our lives if we are unwilling to hear your word. So help us this morning and may Christ receive glory in all that takes place. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Genesis chapter number 12, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abram. Now, he will go on to be called Abraham later on in his life. And that'll be the name that most of us know him by. But at this time, the Bible calls him Abram. We think of Abraham as being the uh, patriarch of the Jewish faith and Jewish family, and certainly we would not be mistaken for thinking of him that way. But if you were to see this man in Genesis chapter 12, you would see a man that has newly resolved in his heart and mind to follow the true God, the God of the Bible, you would find a man that just one chapter earlier, he was a man that the Bible described as a Syrian ready to perish. You would find a man that is a newborn in the faith, we could say, that is young in his relationship with the Lord, but is zealous and is committed and is resolved to see his life live for the glory of the God that he just met. If we were to use one word to describe Abraham's life, I think it would probably be the word faith. Faith is the defining and prevailing quality of his life. In fact, faith is the very touchstone of his relationship with the Lord. Now, that's not any different than you or me today, but our faith is much uh, more developed than what Abraham's was. There's a lot of things Abraham did not know. This he did know, that God had spoken to him, that God had changed his life, and that he wanted to live his life in the service of the God that had reached out to him. His was a life of faith. But in Genesis chapter number 12, we see the development of that faith, the maturity of it, but we also see some mistakes regarding his faith. Before we get there, I want you to notice some important things that the Bible talks about regarding his faith. Now, faith is a word you'll hear a lot. We're coming up into a political season. I didn't know we were ever out of a political season, but From what people say, we're coming into a political season. And you're going to find all kinds of people get religion when it comes time for an election. They'll talk about God. They'll talk about the Bible. They'll twist and abuse and misuse the Scripture. And they will use phrases like this. They will call themselves a person of faith. And they will call their constituents people of faith. Certainly, if we keep voting for some of them, we're going to be people of faith. Amen? And uh, they, they would describe uh, people by this moniker, this name, faithful. What does faith really mean? Uh, faith is meaningless unless it's faith in the right thing. You can put faith in a faithless friend and it won't help you. You can put faith in a faithless spouse and it won't help you. Uh, you can put faith in a faithless government and it won't help you. Uh, faith, uh, the merit of it, the value of it is all vested in what that faith is placed in. Well, Abraham's faith was placed in the Lord. And I want you to notice the richness of it. Verses 1-3, through we see the cornerstone of Abraham's faith. It says, The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, Abraham experienced a lot of remarkable things in his life. Uh, He saw visions of God. He experienced the miracle of God in his own body and and in the health and and body of of his wife. And he saw God do some incredible things. But do you know that his faith was not based on what God did? His faith was based upon what God said. We learn in chapter 12 where his faith began. And it began with the Word of God. I got news for you, if your faith isn't based on the Word of God, your faith is in the wrong thing. If it's based in the church, if it's based in the preacher, if it's based in baptism, if it's based in the opinions of men, well, that faith isn't worth very much. And it's not going to stand one day when you stand before God. But thank the Lord, we can put our faith in the Word of God. We have an anchor for the soul that is the Word of God. God's not left us in the dark regarding what we are to found our faith upon. It's not blind faith, it's based faith. It is based upon the Word of God. So Abraham had a cornerstone in his life. And I would ask you this question before we moved on. Uh, If you believe you're saved, why do you believe that? If you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die, why do you believe that? What makes you believe that? I'll tell you why I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. It's not because I'm a preacher. That might count against me, amen, if you've known enough preachers. Uh, It's not uh, because I'm a Baptist, and well, likewise for that. It's not because I've done good things for God. Many of the things I've done, the bad things far outweigh the good things. And God's standard of perfection is just that. It is perfection even if I had done a lot of good things it wouldn't measure up to God's standard. No. Let me tell you why this preacher is going to heaven. One reason, one reason alone. When I was a 10-year-old boy, I took God at His word. When God said I was a sinner, I said, you're right, God. When God said that Christ is your Savior, He died for you, I said, you're right, God. When God said if you die right now, you die in your sins and go to hell, I said, you're right, God. Whenever He said Christ died on the cross of Calvary in your place, and if you'll believe in Him and ask Him to save you and put your trust in Him, He'll save you. And I said, You're right, God. And I asked God to forgive me and save me. And so my salvation is based upon what the Word of God says. We see the cornerstone of His faith. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And we see the compliance of His faith. Abram's faith was not superficial, it was not theoretical, it was not abstract. His faith was a faith that moved him to respond to God and to obey God. I'm afraid a lot of us, we've got that faith like the devils have in the book of James. We believe and we tremble, but we don't obey. I'm going to tell you this, if your faith's going to be the kind of faith that pleases God, it's going to be a compliant faith, an obedient faith, a faith that yields your life to Him. Why? If you can trust Him with your soul, why can't you trust Him with your life? If you can trust Him with eternity, why can't you trust Him with the present? If you can trust Him uh, with salvation, why can you not trust Him with the choices of your day-to-day life? Abraham was a man who had a compliant faith. Look at verse 6, the Bible says this, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim, unto the plain of Moray. And then notice this little uh, commentary the Holy Ghost gives us here. And the Canaanite was then in the land. Now you say, preacher, why does the Holy Spirit go out of His way to tell us that? It sort of departs from the flow of the narrative. Wouldn't we assume that the Canaanites would be in the land of Canaan? Well, God is wanting to show us that it was no small thing for Abraham to travel through the land of Canaan. You might not be scared of Canaanites, but you ain't in Canaan. Somebody say amen. If you had been traveling through this country, it would have terrified you to know that you were in a foreign land full of strangers and hostile people that did not appreciate your presence, that would have counted your life a small thing. But here's what I see about Abraham's faith. I see the courage of his faith. He was willing to step out into dangerous territory because God had commanded him to do it. Here's what I believe Abraham thought. If God's with me, then it's not dangerous. Can I tell you, hey listen, right smack dab in the heart and center of the will of God is the safest place that you or I could possibly be in. We live in a world today that runs on fear, that moves on fear. We live on a world today uh, that uh, great world decisions and small local decisions, and it seems like all you hear, everything is motivated by fear. But can I tell you, as a child of God, you have no reason to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Hey, part of the victory we have in Christ is not just victory over sin, not just victory over death, but victory over fear. And so if we're trusting God and if we're going with God and if we're serving God, we can be courageous like Abraham was. He was in dangerous territory, but he knew God was with him. Look at verse 7. The Bible says this, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. I see the communion of his faith. In other words, this is not just a crutch for a weak-minded man. Uh, this is not just a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, anesthetic uh, that is given to kind of lull him to sleep at night. His faith was a real faith a faith that reached up and touched heaven, a faith that heaven reached down and touched. His was a faith that God recognized and responded to. Listen, i got good news for you. If you've thought this whole thing of Christianity is just nothing but smoke and mirrors, can I report to you today? You have never been more wrong. Uh, we're not following the teachings of a dead God or a dead prophet. Uh, we're not trying to soothe our conscience and, and calm our nerves. We've got a relationship with a real living powerful, personal God that loves us and knows us and deals with us and speaks to us. I see the communion of His faith. But then look at verse 8. The Bible says this, And He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched His tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there He built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now you say, preacher, that's a lot like verse 7. Yeah, and that's the very point. Verse 7, you know what he does when he finds God? He builds an altar and worships Him. You know what happens in verse 8 when he moves on, finds another place? He builds an altar and he worships Him. I see the consistency of his faith. In other words, Abram wasn't just a, a believer when God was in the house, when he had showed up and was dealing with Him. But even when he departed that place, that relationship he had with God, he maintained on a daily basis. Listen, why would we believe that our faith is real, meaningful, legitimate, and genuine if we're not the same person on Monday that we were on Sunday? God has no pleasure in a hypocrite's faith. Uh, We ought to have a consistency about our faith. I mean, no matter where we go, hey, God's there. We ought to serve Him. We ought to love Him. We ought to worship Him. doesn't matter where our life takes us and where God in life takes us. uh, We ought to recognize and know that He still calls upon us to live a life of faith. In fact, I would say, reading all that, that Abraham's got a pretty good faith. I would say that this faith was not just a component of his life. It was the, the, the core of his life. It's not just an element of it. It is the essence. Of it. But in verse number nine, we see something changes. The Bible says, and Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, going south ain't such a bad thing. Some of you Yankees can say amen to that. I believe the will of God led some of y'all right south to our doorstep, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And going south in and of itself directionally is not significant. But when we read on through the rest of the chapter, we find out that he didn't just go south in his path. He went south in his spirit as well. He goes down to Egypt and he begins to be driven by fear and he begins to do some things that are wrong. And I I think we could maybe say it this way. In verse 9, Abraham's life takes a downward turn. He has been living a life of faith. But from verse 9 down to verse number 20, we're not reading about a life of faith anymore. We're reading about a man that is scared, that is operating in the energy of his flesh, that is that is cunning, that is, that, that is uh, devising plots and plans and machinations. We find a man that has forgotten about God from verse 9 onward. He doesn't mention him. He doesn't talk about him. He doesn't pray to him. He doesn't worship him. What happened in his life? I think we could fitly describe it this way, and this is what I want to preach to you on this morning, from a life of faith to a lapse of faith. How could a man like Abraham, who knew God, who had worshipped God, who had lived for God, whose life had been so radically transformed, how could that be the man that we find in verse number 9 through verse number 20? And you say, preacher, I don't know, and I'll go ahead and clue you in. I'm going to let you know how. But before we get there, can I just say, it could be you. And it could be me. I tell you, we're rough on these Bible characters, aren't we? There ain't a one of them that we would have done things the way they did unless they was doing it the right way. Every one of them we look at, we say, well, I'd never let that happen to me. Oh, let's sit down and compare notes. Let's look at my life. Let's look at your life. Let's look at the lives of those that we would consider to be stalwart Christians. You know what we're going to find? We're going to find that they are flesh and blood just like these Bible characters and these Bible characters are flesh and blood just like we are. They are not Aesop's fables. They were li- real, literal, living individuals that the Word of God meticulously and inerrantly records the stories of their lives. And what we find is this. The choices that they made are very often the same choices that we're making. And so if Abraham could go from this dynamic life of faith uh, to this downward lapse of faith, if it could happen to him, it could happen to us. What did that look like in his life? He departs from a life of faith to experience this lapse of faith. And this lapse of faith could really be described in three actions. We've read through them, but we're going to preach on them this morning. How could we describe? What were the steps in his lapse of faith? I noticed three things. I want you to notice them with me. I'd say, number one, he left. He left the place that God had him. Number two, he lied. You see, when we get out of the place God wants us, we have to start lying to ourselves and lying to others. When we come to the close of the chapter, we find out that he lost. Now, I didn't say God lost him, but he lost some things in his life. Can I tell you, sin has a steep price. I know you think you're just renting it, but you're renting to own. Hey listen, you'll get stuck, you'll get stuck with all the depreciation, all the downside, all the wear and tear, all the heartache and sorrow, while the devil just rides off into the sunset. He lost some things in his life. So what can we learn from this time in Abraham's life? Well first off, we see in verse number nine that he left. This in and of itself might seem innocent, but we find that it leads him to a place of disobedience in his life. Verse nine says Abraham or Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Notice first off this morning, his departure. Now, the reason I say departure is because rather than focusing on where he's heading, I want you to stop for a moment and think about where he had been. You know, most of us, when we get out of the will of God, you know how it begins in our life. We leave some things that we know we have no business leaving behind. In his life, Think about the places he had left. He had been in Sikkim on the plain of Moreh. He had met God there. He had heard from God there. He had journeyed on to between Bethel and Ai and there he had built an altar and he had prayed. He had talked to God. But now he's leaving all of that behind because something is driving him away. You know, I found this to be a truth in life. Uh, We don't trip when we're running to something. Some of us are clumsy enough to, but most of us don't trip when we're running to something, but we do trip when we're running away from something. There's no time more perilous in our life than when we're running away from what we know God expects out of us. Where did He depart from? Well, look back at verse 7. The Bible says this, And the Lord appeared unto Abraham. What a remarkable thing. God manifests Himself to Abraham and said, "Unto thy seed will I give this land. Now, this was an important thing to Abraham. You say, how do we know that? Well, because the very next phrase says there, He built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. It's interesting to note that To our knowledge, God, though he had spoken to Abram prior to this time, this was the first time that he had ever seen God. God appeared unto him. I would say, number one, this morning, where did he leave? He departed the place of God's presence. The place where God was dealing with him. The place where God had spoken to him. You know, often in our lives, when we begin to make a bad decision, we try to get as far away from the place that God shows up at as we possibly can. Now, let me just go ahead and let you know. I, I, listen, I love Walridge Baptist Church. I'm not going to ask you if you do or not because I don't really want to hear the answer. But I love Walridge Baptist. I think it's the greatest church in the world. But you know, I, I, and I ought to feel that way. I'm the pastor. I, if I didn't feel that way, I probably I probably should resign. The old saying, every crow thinks their crow's the blackest. I think it's the greatest church uh, that ever lived. But I know God is working in a lot of places. I don't doubt that God is moving and stirring in a lot of uh, churches, and a lot of places. and There's places in all over this city and all over this country where God graces them with His presence because they know Him and they love Him. But there's something precious about the place where God shows up. Just like Jonah, very often when we get out of the will of God, we run from the presence of the Lord. And that's what Abram was doing. He didn't want to meet with God because he didn't want to hear what God had to say about it because he knew what God was going to say about it in the first place. He departed from the place of God's presence. Not only that, it says in verse number 7, that the Lord said unto him, man, that's interesting. The Lord spoke to him. He didn't just appear, but he gave him a word and said, unto thy seed will I give this land. In other words, he, he fled. He departed from the place of God's presence, but he also departed from the place of God's promise. He got away from where God was speaking to him. You know, in my life, and I don't know if it's true like it is for me, for you. I, I bet it is. I mean, uh, but I found that when I get out of the will of God, I don't want to hear the word of God. It bothers me. You know why? Because this isn't just some, some book, some ensemble, some potpourri of man's wisdom. This is a very living, breathing, inspired, inerrant, preserved word of God. And it's living. It has power. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's quick, meaning it's alive and it works in our lives. And when we get out of the will of God, man, oftentimes we want to get as far away from the word of God as possible. Because it bothers us to read it and to study it. Because it pricks our hearts. Because it 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 frays our soul. And it just bothers us. So this is what Abraham's doing. He's getting away from the place where God spoke. And then look at verse 8. The Bible says he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord. Notice this last phrase. And called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he didn't just have a place of revelation in verse number 7. He had a place of supplication in verse number 8. He had a place where he prayed. He didn't just hear from God. He talked to God. But now all of a sudden he's leaving all that behind. Can I tell you the first thing that goes when you take a step out of the will of God will be your prayer life. It'll be the very place. In fact, it was the most immediate place that Abraham was leaving. He, he didn't leave from the plain of Sikkim. He had already departed from that, but now he takes a step away and he's leaving behind that altar where he prayed and talked to God. Hey, listen, we, we, ought, to, we ought to get real serious in our spiritual walk when we find our prayer life declining. It is the true thermometer of our devotion to the Lord. There's all kinds of unsaved, unregenerate, godless men that study the Bible academically. All over this country and all over this world, you'll find all kinds of people that don't know God from a goose that are sitting in churches. But you won't find anybody that's truly getting a hold of God and praying except those that love Him and are close to Him. In other words, our prayer life is the first thing that declines. So we see His departure in verse 9. Verse 10 we see his disturbance. The Bible says, and there was a famine in the land. Now, it's easy to look at this and imagine that this famine was sent in judgment in Abraham's life. But I don't know that that's true. There are times, certainly in the Old Testament, when famine is indicative of God's judgment. We find that in the in the land of Israel that God often would, would chastise and chide his people through the, the plague and scourge of famine. But I don't think that was the case in this chapter. You say, preacher, why is that? Because Abraham was worse off running from the famine than he would have been relying on God through the famine. And so it reminds me of this. I see first off the occasion of this famine. Even when you're in, in the will of God, famines are going to happen. Sooner or later, hard times are going to come. That's going to happen in your life. Hey, listen, that, that's not a, a time to abandon your faith. But that's the reason we cling to faith. Our faith is not scared of famines. Our faith is built for famine. And famines will arise in our life. And by famine, what I mean is any hard time, any any trial, any affliction. I see the occasion of the famine, but then I see the location of it. Where did the famine happen? It happened in the land. Uh, this is going to mess up a lot of the uh, health and wealth preacher's theology. Of course, it's messed up already. Somebody say amen to that. I remember years ago hearing a guy, some, and I don't even know who he was, some guy with a, with a million-dollar smile somewhere out near Arizona or Arkansas or something, he's preaching on the radio. He said, we have a good God and we have a bad devil. If it's good, it comes from God, and if it's bad, it comes from devil. I don't know if he's going to make it to heaven, but I bet when he does, Job hits him right in the mouth. And I hope I'm there to see it. <laughs> oh, listen, you talk about getting people confused. Here's the reality. Job said, hey... Shall we receive uh, good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If if your theology is based on the idea that the good things you experience in your life can only be related to to a mark of spirituality and if bad things happen, they can only be related to some measure of disobedience in your life, then tell me why it was dry in Israel and it was lush in Egypt. They go down to Egypt and they find food there. You know why? Because this famine was not the judgment of God, rather it was a test in the life of Abraham. And I noticed the location of it. Hey, famines do happen in the land. If somebody lied to you, let me go ahead and correct the record right now. You live for God, you serve God, you give your heart and life to God, that doesn't make you immune from heartache and sorrow and trouble. It will find your life just as it does anybody's life. And just because the famine shows up, that don't mean you're in the wrong land. I see the the disturbance that took place. But then look at verse number 10, the end of it. The Bible says, and Abram went down. That's significant. He went down. You'll find this in the Bible. When men went to Jerusalem, they always went up to Jerusalem. didn't matter if they were in the northern kingdom coming from Samaria because Judah, uh, uh, Jerusalem was, was uh, upon a mountain, Mount Zion. Every time they went to Jerusalem, they was always going up. And every time they left Jerusalem, they was always going down. And every time they went to Egypt in the Bible, they always went down to Egypt. didn't matter where they was coming from. Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grievous in the land. I see his decision. Here's a man standing at the moment of decision. What is he going to do? And sadly, he makes the wrong decision. I see his destination. He went down. And any time we are leaving God's will, we are headed in a downward direction. Doesn't matter what the world may promise us. Doesn't matter what uh, society may promise us. Doesn't matter how bright our prospects may seem. If it pulls us out of the will of God, then it's a downward direction. I've seen many a person throughout the years get out of church and out of the will of God. Uh, because they were following after uh, dreams that God didn't give them and, and goals that God didn't give them. And, and, and as they pursued those things, they had lofty ideas about how glorious it was going to be. I, I've seen them say, Preacher, I, I can't help it. I've got to take this job. I know it's going to take me out of church, but the money's too good. Or, uh, you know, Preacher, you don't understand. I mean, I know this person doesn't know the Lord, but, but I'm in love with them and they love me and they're, they're a precious person. And they justified in their mind the decision they were making. But the uh, record will tell the tale that always when they headed out of the will of God, they were going in a downward direction. I see his destination, but then I see his motivation. The Bible says, for the famine was grievous in the land. Uh, In other words, this was motivated by fear. It was not motivated by faith. It was motivated by fear. Abram let his problems push him off the path of God's will. Can I ask you this question? What's motivating you in your choices? As a believer, we only be motivated by faith, not by fear. Uh, now, of course, we understand fear in the Bible has the, the connotation of, of terror at times, in, and that's the case in this passage. And other times, fear denotes a reverential respect for God, like a child should have for a father. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say there ain't even some overlap between those two if we're raising them, right? Somebody say amen to that. But uh, the fear we're speaking of here is terror in the heart. The Bible says that God's not given us that spirit. Hey, perfect love has cast out fear. Our decisions should be motivated by faith, by believing, not wild, ungrounded faith of, of, of desire and imagination, but faith that is rooted on the firm foundation of the Word of God. I'm doing what I'm doing because I believe God's Word expects it up, commands it up. And therefore, I can go forward in boldness. But his motivation was all wrong. He was leaving because the famine was grievous. He was thinking, how's God? going to feed us. Well, how had God fed them already? Uh, listen, if God wants you in a famine, you can't run from it. And if God's going to provide for you, He'll do it whether it's a famine or a feast. God's not worried about the famine. Hey, listen, He's the one that makes the crops to grow. You think He's worried about the famine? And so we should not let fear motivate us, but rather faith. So I see that He left. He left the place that God had for Him. Now, as He leaves... Abram being a sincere individual, he has to start telling himself and his spouse something. Imagine what that conversation looked like when he first told Sarah, we're leaving and we're going down to Egypt. I mean, this is a man that had just left his family and his home and whatever wealth and riches that it may have contained and, and left and went out into a place of nothing with, with nothing but the promise of God to go upon. This is the Abraham that Sarah knew. Now all of a sudden he's saying, listen wife, we've got to go because we're going to starve to death up here. He couldn't tell her that, so he had to tell some lies. In verse 11, 12, and 13, we see the lies that he told. Notice, we see that he lied. Notice what types of lies that they were. First off, I would say this, that there are some fearful lies that he told himself. I don't know if you notice this in verse 11, but there's no mention whenever he leaves the land of, of Canaan, of there being any danger when he's going to Egypt. He leaves because he feels like he's in more danger in Canaan than he would be down in Egypt. We don't have any notion of him buying pepper spray or putting a pistol in his back pocket. He just sets out on the road on the back of his camel and says, once we hit Egypt, everything's going to be fine. But I don't know if you know this. It's a long walk from Canaan to Egypt. And somewhere between there and Egypt's front door, something changed. The Bible says in verse 11, it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Notice number one, the development of his fear. What happened to Abraham? What happened to this bold man of faith? I'll tell you exactly what happened. He spent two, three, four days riding on the back of a camel thinking about everything that could go wrong when he hit Egypt. You know why that happened in his life? He yielded. Now, I I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. I understand there's such things, clinical anxiety, that ain't got nothing to do with what a person is is desiring to feel or think, but just has to do with things in their body and their biology, things in their makeup that they battle with and struggle with. And I'm not diminishing that. I'm not making light of that. But I tell you, I don't care who you are, whether diagnosed, undiagnosed, clinical, non-clinical, don't matter what it is, ain't none of us help when we're out of the will of God in dwelling on the prospect of what can go wrong. As he's journeying towards Eden, he's thinking about everything that can happen. Everything that can go wrong. He's looking over. You you say, I was about to get in trouble there. Sometimes I make jokes that are only jokes to me. Well, I'll tell you what I was going to say. I'll tell you how much he thought about it between when he left Canaan and when he got to Egypt. His wife got a lot prettier. He's sitting over there and I guess you out in the desert, nobody to look at but her. She would look pretty good. And uh, if you're going to leave, tithe first, all right? And so as he's riding, here's what's happening. He's thinking about all the ways this can go wrong. He's thinking about everything that can happen. You know why? That is an un, a mind that is untethered. Abram probably had no intentions of committing sin when he left for Egypt. But the further he traveled, And the more that he spent on the journey, the more time he spent, the more fearful he became. When he finally saw the magnitude and majesty of Egypt, he gave into his fears and devised a plan. Listen carefully. A mind not surrendered is a mind not saved. If your mind is not surrendered to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, it is free game for the devil to make it his playground. And that's what happened to him. He got out of the will of God, and now all of a sudden his mind is is an open well that anyone can pour poison into. I see the development of his fears, and then I notice the deception of his fears. The Bible says in verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Now that probably sounded real good. It sounded compelling enough that it convinced Sarah to be willing to to risk her integrity and her marriage bed to try to save Abraham's life. So it was a compelling lie that he told. But here's the problem. It was just that. It was a lie. You know what we find? We find, number one, that this fear was an exaggeration. In fact, the Egyptians were more upright and respectful towards the marriage bed than Abraham was. Abraham's saying, they see how pretty you are, honey, they're going to kill me and take you. But whenever Pharaoh finds out that Abraham lied to him, he's, almost, he's stunned by the deception of Abraham. He says, why didn't you tell me this? If I had known that she was your wife and not your sister, I would have never done this. Instead, you know what we find? Most of our fears are exaggerations. Most of the time, we are are crafting things in our mind that are not founded on the authority of God's word. And that's what happens when we yield to fear. We see his fear was an exaggeration, but really what this fear was was an excuse. Indulging this fear allowed Abraham to tell himself that he had no choice but to sin. After all, for him, it wasn't really sin, you see. Really, it was self-preservation. God put me in this situation. He sent the famine in the land. I had no choice but to leave. Yeah, you did. You could have stayed and watched God pour manna from heaven. Well, I had no choice but to go. And then I get to Egypt. I mean, obviously, they're they're going to kill me. I mean, you know, God can't handle a pharaoh of Egypt or nothing. See, really, at the end of the day, it was all just an excuse that allowed him to feel better about the sin that he was committing. When we go into sin, when we get out of the will of God, the first person we lie to after God is ourselves. We tell ourselves we had no choice. I see the fearful lies that he told himself. And then I see the foolish lies he told himself. Verse 13. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. This is an interesting conversation. Most of us, if we said something like this to our wives, we wouldn't be worried about the Egyptians. We'd be worried about our wives. But he tells her, he says, if you'll just lie... And say that you're my sister. Now, there's only one way he could have imagined that would work out. Pharaoh, if Pharaoh had believed that Abraham, the Pharaoh of his fears and nightmares, you understand, if he had believed that Abraham was an obstacle to him obtaining Sarah, it doesn't matter if he was a brother or a husband, he would have killed him. So Abraham, in devising this plan, he intends on yielding his wife's honor as a ransom for his own life. And you know what he believes? He believes somehow. This is going to work. What a foolish lie he told himself. He lied to himself about the success of his plan. He says that it may be well with me for thy sake. In other words, things are going to work out, honey. Don't you worry about it. I've got everything under control. Never have we ever committed sin that we've not told ourselves that we've got it under control. We've always, I don't know how we do it. It is a feat of gymnastics that's fit for the Olympics, but we tell ourselves, Somehow this is going to work out. It's going to be all right. It it, it ended bad for everybody else, but it won't end bad for me. He lied to himself about the success of his plan. Then notice what he says at the end. He says, my soul shall live because of thee. Listen, I don't want to get too deep into it because we don't have time, but sometimes we expect too much of folks. He's saying, I'm going to be okay because of what you're going to do. You know what he was lying to himself about? About the source of his protection. He was saying, My wife can shield me from this. Well, number one, Abraham, if you hadn't got off in sin, there wouldn't be nothing to shield you from in the first place. But number two, if you believe that your wife is the one keeping you safe, then you obviously don't believe that God is the one keeping you safe. I listen, I know we think we're real smart and clever. We all do, I do, I mean we're bad about it. Uh and we all think we've devised the perfect plan and that we're really the ones that have it all under control. But all that's a lie from the devil, hell, and the flesh. We think that that's true, but it's not true. He was just lying to himself. We see that he left. We see that he lied. And finally, we see that he lost some things. There are some things that he got in Egypt. He left Egypt a richer man. Most of the wealth that Abram will later on uh, be noted for in Scripture, it, it came from God in His providence turning this situation to good. But I would notice not just what he gained, There are some things that he lost there. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now that last phrase, taken into Pharaoh's house, uh, we we shouldn't go farther than what it means, but we shouldn't stop short of what it means either. It's apparent that there were no carnal interactions between Pharaoh and Abraham's wife. From later on in the passage, uh, Pharaoh says to Abraham, I, "I I could have sinned. I could have taken her into my bed." So obviously he did not do that. But the fact that he says that to Abraham tells you this that she was brought into his house with that intention. I just I just. Imagine what that must have been like for Sarah. Imagine what that moment was like when she turned and looked at her husband as they're walking her way to install her in the harem of a foreign man. And he's going uh, of a foreign ruler and they're going to put him in this harem and, and, and place him. Uh, imagine what she thought. You know, their relationship was rocky from this day forward. You'll find that there is this spirit within Sarah of, of, of almost a lightness, a lack of reverence towards Abraham. The Bible talks about her reverence that she showed to Abraham as being an example of godly temperance in, in the book of first Peter or second Peter where it talks about how that that she called him Master. And that was an effort for her. When you go later on, every time that Abraham seeks to be a spiritual leader in his home, he finds some opposition from Sarah. She's trying to figure out ways to sort of craft the will of God. She's trying to figure out ways to, to, to sort of uh, go around, to an end around around God's Word and God's plan. And there always seemed to be this struggle in their home. From the issue with Ishmael, from the issue with Hagar, uh, from the time that she laughed when God spoke. I mean, over and over there's just this... this... This thing where you can tell she had trouble respecting. wonder where that started. I bet it started as she looked down the palace hallways in Pharaoh's throne and saw her husband standing down there watching her be carted away to be defiled and for their marriage bed to be dishonored. So what did he lose, preacher? Well, I'd say number one, he lost his testimony with his spouse. And he never really got it back the way that he once had it. Leading up to this moment, we have no protest from Sarah in regards to following him. She leaves her family just like he left his family. And she follows him unhesitatingly. But from this moment forward, there is always this doubt in her heart and mind about whether Abraham is making the right decision. You know why? Because he made a pretty wrong decision here. And for the rest of his life, he had to battle that. Can I tell you one of the great tragedies? You get out of the will of God, there may be a lot of people that it don't affect, but it's going to affect your family. The people that love you, the people that watch you, the people that depend upon you the most, it's going to affect them more than anyone. He lost his testimony with his spouse. Look at verse 16. The Bible says this, And he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen, and he asses, and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. wonder how Abraham felt whenever they brought that big retinue of of gold and riches and camels and livestock and servants and knew that that was the price that he had sold his wife for. You know, he would go on to go back to Canaan with all of that in tow. But you know that Sarah had to know as they traveled in that caravan that all that was purchased at the price of her dignity. And I just ask this question, how do they sleep at night? I, I'm not trying to be too rough on Abraham. I understand he could be all of us, any of us, but but how did he sleep at night? How did he look himself in the mirror as he wore that gold chain around his neck, as he wore that finery, those good Egyptian clothes? How, how did he live with himself when he looked out over the field and, and saw all that livestock and knew that that had happened? Because he compromised his integrity. You know, he lost his testimony with his spouse, but he also lost his testimony with himself. He had to look in the mirror and know what a low-down rascal that he was. I'll tell you this, great peace of mind comes from living in the will of God. And when we get out of the will of God, we'll do things that we'll never get over. Things we'll struggle with, things we'll battle with. And God will forgive us, and our family will forgive us, and our church family will forgive us. But if we're being honest, our flesh will use it as a baton to wield against us for the rest of our life. I'm not trying to make anyone's burden any heavier than it already is, but i got people in this room They ain't lived that life. They ain't gone down that path. They don't have the bad memories that you do. And for their sake, let me say to them, there's a high cost to getting out in sin. There's things you see you can't unsee. Things you experience you can't unexperience. And a trip down to Egypt can be a costly thing. He lost his testimony with himself. Look at verse 17. The Bible says the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou, she is my sister, so I might have taken her to meet a wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. The, the words of Pharaoh dripped with disappointment and disgust. He looks at Abraham he says, why would you do such a thing? You said you know God. You said you're a righteous man. You said you're an upright man and you come in here and lie to me and risk my life and risk my household. Here's your wife. You take her and go. I want nothing to do with you. That's how you want to see a believer leave the presence of a sinner in it. I'm sick of dealing with you. I want nothing to do with you. You're a disgrace." Can I tell you something? There's no one that is more of a disgrace than a Christian out of the will of God. He lost his testimony with his spouse. He lost his testimony with himself. He also lost his testimony with the sinners. That's the first interaction to our knowledge that Abraham has with the Egyptians. It won't be his last. And it left a bitter taste in their mouth to think, if this is the God of Israel, it's not a God that I want. Did you know that the Egyptians despised the Jews historically? That whenever Moses is leading the children of Israel out of, uh, out of Egypt, and Pharaoh at that time, a different Pharaoh, but Pharaoh says to them, why don't you just go sacrificing the land? And Moses responds and says, we would sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians in their eyes and they would kill us, they would stone us. The reason he says that is because there was a historical spite, disdain, and disgust from Egyptians toward Jews because they were shepherds, because they viewed them as unclean, because they viewed them as untrustworthy. I reckon, wonder where that began. Could it be that it began with the decision of one man that said, I'll put my own flesh and my own personal safety above the truth, the Word of God, and I will do things my way. Hey, listen, we can wreck a testimony of sinners that we can't never restore. I, you've heard me say this, and, and heard others say this. There are people that I'd never be able to win to Christ. You might could go win them, but I never could, because if I ever had to go and speak to them, they couldn't get past the way that they've seen me before, the things that I've done, the things that I that I that, I, that I've committed, the, the ways that I've behaved. And I just, I'm sorry, I'm not the vessel for them, because I can't I can't go to them. You know why? Because my testimony has done been burnt, and I can never get that back. Pray that God reaches him in some way, but he's going to have to do it with somebody else. He ain't going to be able to do it with me. Your testimony is a precious thing. Abraham lived many long years with the price that he had paid for this trip down into Egypt. And it all began when he decided he was going to leave where God had him and be moved and motivated by fear and go and live in the flesh, do his own thing. And now this beautiful life of faith. And and Abram was not a perfect man. He went on to make other mistakes in his life, but this shines as one of the great mistakes. This stands as one of the great stains on his testimony. He went from this life of faith to this tragic lapse of faith. And he walked a path that many of us may have set a foot on in the past week, in the past month, in the past few days. We're not as far down the road as he is, so it's not apparent yet. But we have started in that direction. Preacher, what can I do? Well, you know, the Bible talks about when we've sinned that we ought to repent of that sin. You know what the word repent means, right? It's a 180 degree turn. It's a, it's a, it's a change of, of attitude and spirit that produces a change in our behavior, just like faith. Faith is not a work. It is a, it's an attitude of the heart that produces a response. Well, repentance is the same way. It's an attitude of the heart, a decision of the heart, but it produces a change. You say, preacher, what do I do? Well, if you just headed down the wrong road, here's what you'd do. Once you realize you'd stop, and you turn around, and you start heading the right way. And that's what we need to do spiritually today. If we've headed down that road, we need to stop. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to turn around, and we need to run hard as we can to the will and to the place of God. Let's bow together this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to do that and to respond to the Lord. Now, anybody's welcome to come right in this moment if God spoke to your heart. But I wonder if there might be some that would say, you know, Toby, I believe that I... And where I need to be with the Lord. I don't know of any unconfessed sin in my life. I don't know of anything that is an obstacle. But man, I've got loved ones. And they're headed that direction. They used to love the Lord. They used to be in church. They used to serve the Lord. But now today, they're headed in that direction. And my heart is broken for them. If that's you, why don't you slip out of your seat and come down. Find a place at this altar. Why don't you ask God to work in their life. Call their name out to the Lord. Specifically out to the Lord. Say their name to the Lord. Say, I'm praying for and say their name to the Lord. You don't have to say it out loud, but say it in your heart. And ask God to work in their heart and in their life and to work in their uh, Christian experience, their walk with Him. Father, I pray that You bless this invitation. I pray that Christ be magnified. Lord, I love You. And I ask it in Christ's name.